First, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schreiner will be presenting this morning, a native of Virginia. Jeff considers himself truly a native New Englander, having lived here since he was one. He, um, he undertook his undergraduate studies at Yale University, graduating with a degree in electrical engineering. Uh, subsequently, he worked at the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation in New Haven, leading to 11 publications, including one in the New England Journal of Medicine, so uh, something that not many of us have on our CVs. He came north and joined us uh, for uh, the medical school, the Geisel School of Medicine, where he graduated in 2014 as a member of the Gold Humanism Honor Society and stayed in town for residency with us starting three years ago. And uh, Jeff is going to be continuing with us on the Dartmouth plan with the um, residency, leadership preventative medicine residency here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So uh, as with so many of our uh, grads, this is not a farewell, but this is just a uh, next step rite of passage. So good luck, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> Can you hear me in the back? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Good morning. Th thank you again for being here this morning. Um, the title of my talk is World No Tobacco Day 2017, The Role of Pediatricians in Tobacco Control. So I have no financial disclosures, no conflicts of interest. Um, I will be discussing some off-label use of nicotine replacement, um, primarily for reducing cigarette use and deferring smoking. Of note, the FDA has relaxed their labeling recently, a couple of years ago, and in the process of continuing that on nicotine replacement. Currently, they don't cover these um, indications, but they may soon. Um, as Isaac Newton once said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants some of the contents of the slides and images are adapted from work of our own Sue Tansky and the American Academy of Pediatrics um, Julius B. Center, Richmond Center of Excellence. By habit coincidence, there's another kind of uh, day this week that's important beyond Friday. Um, May 31st, today, is World No Tobacco Day. Um, it's, it's put on by WHO and some other organizations, and the goal is to highlight the threats of tobacco to the development of nations worldwide and to call on governments to implement strong tobacco control measures and to demonstrate how individuals can contribute to making a sustainable tobacco-free world, either by committing to never taking up tobacco products or by quitting the habit. When I say tobacco, that includes all smoked and smokeless forms. Tobacco control refers to any and all aspects of efforts to reduce or eliminate tobacco use in any form. While this talk will not have a global focus like this movement, my involvement in tobacco cessation has a global origin. You can see here, these are my, this is, I'm there with my three siblings. Um, my younger brother um, traveled to Beijing, China as part of a master's in leadership. Um, and this was before the public no-smoking laws were in effect there. Unfortunately, when he came home, after three months, he was smoking tobacco. After that point, I worked with him for years and through many quit attempts, uh, but ultimately failed in reaching tobacco cessation completely. 
And then my two current children <laughs> came into the world. Um, they loved their uncle. And working with my brother, it was through their presence that we redefined success and were able to eliminate exposure to tobacco smoke through nicotine replacement. In residency, we see parents motivated by their kids, even prenatally. I remember in the newborn nursery working with a young couple that had a one-day-old. Their chart noted yes under smoking. Uh, when I asked them about it, both the mother and father proudly stated that they had stopped smoking as soon as they found out about the pregnancy. We'll explore this case a little bit more throughout the talk. Otherwise, I'd like to review the epidemiology of tobacco use, discuss the harms of tobacco smoke exposure, explore some opportunities to help primarily parents. My focus will be mainly parents, establish the cessation imperative, and learn how to employ some evidence-based interventions. <coughs> so we've known about the dangers of, and I'm sure you do too, about the first, second, and now data is mounting on third-hand smoke exposure for many years. And I'm sure everyone in this audience has engaged in tobacco sensation of some form. It's documenting smoking is part of our medical record. Where are we nationally? Currently, in the most recent 2015 NHIS data, there are 36.5 million adults who still smoke. That's about 15% of the population. Now, there's a slight silver lining. That's actually down, believe it or not. But if you dig deeper, that silver lining is slightly tarnished. 26% of those living below poverty levels smoke. 34% of those who have their GED. And 24% with less than high school education. And it's very prevalent among those with any mental illness, which is about 20% of the population. 36% of women who have mental illness between 18 and 24, and 27 between 25 and 44. Children exposed to secondhand smoke have more frequent school absences. Prenatal smoking and secondhand smoke exposure lead to poor pregnancy outcomes, low birth weight, SIDS, and externalization in their, in their kids of behavior problems. Additionally, living with adult smokers is an independent risk factor for food insecurity, and parents who least afford it need to miss work. Not only is it prevalent, it's bad for our health, as we know. It's a leading cause of preventable death in the United States, with 430,000 deaths annually. Tobacco is a risk factor for six of the world's eight leading causes of death. Now, the dangers of smoke comes from inhaling the chemical compounds from tobacco, but also from when it's combusted. There are over 70 carcinogens. Secondhand smoke alone kills 41,000 non-smokers a year. The bottom line is that there's no safe level of secondhand smoke and no safe cigarette. Now, their economic impact is large as well. Those 430,000 deaths represent $193 billion in health-related economic losses, both in direct medical expenses and lost productivity. Of note, a pack-a-day smoker spends on average between $1,500 and $2,000 a year on cigarettes. 
And what about our children, um, who make up a lot of that population of secondhand smoke exposure? In the CDC's 2014 um, report, they estimated that 5.6 million of the children alive today will ultimately die early from smoking if we do not do more to reduce current smoking rates. That's one in every 13. If we know it's so bad for children, how are we doing about exposure? So a study looking at a metabolite of nicotine, cotinine, which is a good surrogate for exposure, um, from 2011 to 2012, 40% of children aged 3 to 11 had detectable levels, which is down from 54% in 2007, as you can see. But still, this is a very large number and represents 15 million children. Evidence as well was determined in the study that parents smoke at higher rates than non-parents and that they quit at lower rates as well. Now, I mentioned any exposure in terms of this coating levels um, and that at even low levels, they found there's a relationship between this, a negative relationship between this cotinine and reading and math scores. And it's bad for our health, as we know. And the key point is that children, and a lot of this is why we do what we do, have no voice and no choice. And so it's important for us to have our role in making a smoke-free environment. To go into a few more specifics about the health effects, which I'm sure most of you are aware, um, in kids with asthma, it increased the odds of hospital admission by 2.2, ED visits by 1.4, more ear infections, more severe asthma attacks, more pneumonia, and there's also increases in conduct disorder and decreased levels of antioxidant levels in blood, even at lowest levels. So again, there's no risk-free level of exposure. Now there's a, one positive aspect of this, and as we noted, parents and adults are aware of these effects and most want to quit. Uh, one study found that 70% of tobacco users reported wanting to quit. There are broad ranges in, in this in terms of this percentage, but it's often high when you present with the effects of smoking. And most of these smokers have at least one quit attempt. 70 to 80% of the smokers who have these attempts try to quit cold turkey. But by one year, only 5% are still, have still quit. This is a cry for help. This solo approach, this cold turkey approach, is not working. Now, it's a call for help. Um, but only 70 thank you for those people who recognize this. 70% um, of smokers see a primary care physician annually, but often those are acute visits, and they're going after that big ghost. Um, and so arises our opportunity as pediatricians. Um, pediatricians see roughly a quarter of the population of U.S. smokers through well-child checks and other visits. And the parents of young children tend to be young, um, and otherwise healthy. And so they often see the pediatrician more often. And not only is, do we see more, interventions that have been employed in pediatric office settings have been successful 
in reducing the number of cigarettes smoked among these families, as well as nicotine levels, as well as promoting smoke-free homes and paired reported quit rates. This opportunity doesn't just start in the outpatient setting. Returning to that newborn nursery case earlier, applauding the prenatal smoke cessation and prenatal efforts is not enough. One study in 2012 demonstrated that women who stopped smoking while pregnant, between 45 and 70% resumed using tobacco within one year of delivery. We've already talked about the adverse effects of smoking on children. Additionally, rates of breastfeeding initiation and continuation are also lower among smokers than non-smokers. These mothers who relapsed or um, tend to be of lower socioeconomic status, have less education, and have other serious psychological and social stressors. If you look closer at their quitting prenatally, um, only half of those mothers received evidence-based interventions um, and were referred to quit lines. So there's an opportunity still. Intervention with parents with older children is also important. Anti-smoking actions by parents are a strong predictor of non-smoking in teens. Rules against smoking and parental cessation may decrease teen smoking uptake by up to 400%. This may be the case, but I recognize that, and people recognize that this is just another added thing to our busy day. Um, so. Uh, survey, which is probably still pertinent, from 2004, showed that among residents, 82% said it's time was the biggest factor for not getting involved. There are concerns about reimbursement. People don't know how. There's a concern that the parent is not the patient, and there's concern that it can alienate the parent. Well, we'll come back and address those soon. There have been studies that looked at um, how much is needed, and small doses of tobacco sensation counseling is effective. As little as three minutes doubles quit attempts and success. Now, granted, counseling is a big role in smoking cessation. Um, support from clinicians, support from families is very important. So our goal should be to eliminate the number one cause of preventable mortality, eliminate to, uh, tobacco smoke exposure, and decrease its economic impact. So the only way to truly protect the non-smoking family members completely is for all family smokers to quit completely. There are guidelines and recommendations from many groups. And in 2008, we talked, the Public Health Service talked about you should ask the pediatric and adolescent patients. In 2009, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended that all pediatricians counsel patients and provide as young as five years against initiating tobacco use. I don't know how many of you talked to five-year-olds about smoking. Uh, my daughter this morning said, good, it, it doesn't smell good. And, <laughs> and so that, I said, that's, okay, you understand that, that's good. Um, and provide counseling on tobacco cessation, and also suggest that pediatricians should advise families to make their homes and cars smoke-free. Now, 
as I mentioned, counseling is a very important role in this, and I know that three minutes isn't kind of sufficient counseling it's because tobacco is a chronic relapsing condition. Nicotine is addicting. There are effective treatments, and every person should be offered treatment. It's important, though, as we do this, as I discovered in my brother, that we should consider other measures of success. Quitting completely is hard. Sorry. Um, it's a process. We should think about reducing exposure and think about other incremental steps. Think about reframing the idea of tobacco control as in 100% smoke-free homes and cars. And learn how to use nicotine replacement to avoid smoking. <clears throat> to address this and to provide some guidance on how to approach tobacco control, there's a three-step approach that is advocated by the American Academy Pediatrics Richmond Center called CEASE. It's a three-step. It's a family-centered approach and includes motivational messages and provision of pharmacotherapy and referral to quit line. So let me go through what this means. Returning to our earlier example, think about, we have to think about this in family-centered approach. So we talked already about the mother. We heard that the father also smokes. It's important to know that who's going to be caring for this baby after birth. And it turns out in this example, the grandmother who's going to be caring for the baby also smokes. And she did not stop smoking. So it's very important to ask families about their use, about their use in the home and car, and whether or not you or your child live with anyone who uses tobacco, and what rules you have in place about using tobacco in, in the car or in the home. Focus groups of parents saying, how do you want to, how should we approach this? And they say, please start from where we are. It's kind of the idea is the tenets of motivational interviewing. You know, offer them more than just saying you should quit. And importantly, with this family-centered approach, get information to the smokers. Because sometimes the people who bring their kids to your office aren't the ones who smoke. So in terms of asking, if the person who uses tobacco asks if they are interested in quitting, would they like a medication to help them quit, and they want to be enrolled in the free quit line? And this idea about kind of reframing this question and about the relationship with the parents comes up when you say, the person tells you, I'm not interested in quitting. I'm not ready. And so then you can reframe it and say, are you interested in helping maintain a completely smoke-free home and car? Would they like a medication to help them avoid smoking or to reduce smoking? So how are we doing? We advise patients to quit smoking, and we ask the right questions. A study looked at in 2010 looked, uh, interviewed pediatricians and found that we advise both adolescent patients and their parents to quit smoking between 60 and 80 percent of the time and work with the parents to assess reasons for and against continuing to smoke, about 50% of the time. But then only about 15% of the time do we take the next step and assist them in tobacco cessation, providing evidence-based approaches, or refer them to quit lines. So our sidewalk often ends after the ask. Now, assist. So what, what does that mean, beyond ask? So 
again, we're not going to tell them this is the rule. You should ask permission to make suggestions. And look for some thought. Again, this is motivational interviewing, and you want to basic counseling and just elicit ideas from the, the parents, offer alternatives, and again, focus on making the space where exposure occur smoke-free. 100% smoke-free in home and car is very important. And you should advise all smokers to quit. 100% smoke-free creates a healthier environment, leads to less sm smoking frequency, which can help the smoker himself, and also makes smoking less convenient. And there's the economic impact of making that you can sell your home, rent your apartment more easily. Now, it's important in 100% smoke-free. Be very specific. Um, it means no smoking anywhere in the home and car. It's like your child in the swimming pool. If he pees, you'll be exposed. Um, it, it does not mean smoking your window, in the basement, inside when it rains. It's important to spell that out, even though it sounds like that should be something people understand. So it's important to, once you've determined that someone's interested in quitting, to set a quit date, prescribe the recommended medication for assisting to quit, enroll in a quit line, and refer to local services. Because again, we have three minutes of time to be effective, but that's, you know, we can't do that every single time, and so we should create relationships with our um, local counselors and others involved in tobacco cessation. Now, if they're only interested in, if you've determined that, okay, they don't want to quit, but they're interested in reducing smoking or replacing cigarettes, this is the space where you can prescribe or recommend nicotine replacement. Now, there's, again, that label is in kind of flux in terms of what's recommended from the FDA, so it's still considered off-label use, but I have hope that it's going to be heading in that direction. There are other medications that are used for smoking cessation. You've probably heard of Chantix as well as Bupropion. We typically, because the parent is not technically our patient, cannot prescribe that to them. Um, and we, that also requires close follow-up. So I'm going to focus on nicotine replacement. So we want to, nicotine is an addiction. Um, studies have shown that the nicotine receptors in smokers are close to 300% higher in density. So when you remove that effect of nicotine and that presence, you're going to get changes in mood, you're going to get cognitive changes, and withdrawal happens quickly. So that's the reward system. And nicotine replacement and other therapies are important because, again, this is an addiction, this is a habit, and it takes time to develop the skills that will get you to success. As I mentioned, tobacco withdrawal occurs within hours and may occur for and be for a long period of time. I'm not going to read all those, but you've probably experienced someone or seen someone that's going through this process. It's not pleasant. So nicotine replacement therapy leads, is looking to reduce the nicotine withdrawal symptoms, not to purely just be a substitute for tobacco. Helps with momentary urges, helps modify these habits, and postpones smoking. So the idea is that it's, it's, it's more than just kind of let's stop. It's acknowledging that there's this exposure element to it 
and you can postpone smoking when you don't want to expose. Um, so what works? We already mentioned cold turkey not being super effective. Combination is truly what works the best. Medication alone is about 20% effective in terms of quitting by one year. Medication plus counseling, whether it's the bupropion or Chantix or the nicotine replacement, is closer to around 30% by one year. So there are other uses of nicotine replacement, as I mentioned. So beyond cessation, you can do gradual cessation. Um, so if you're interested in quitting, you want to reduce as a way to stop. Now, there have been studies that look at is cutting back actually have an impact on eventual health of the smoker himself. And those studies showed that cutting back didn't really improve um, the outcomes in terms of mortality of those patients. Um, harm reduction, so if you're not interested in stopping, you can improve the health and protect the, the non-smokers and reduce secondhand smoke. And then also you can reduce the stop. So the idea is getting to the point where you can quit because cutting back, even though it doesn't help the health, it often you cut down and reduce, you're more likely to be able to quit. So this approach is currently off-label, but in other countries, it actually shows that reducing, deferring smoking leads to increased future cessation rates and can replace cigarettes one-to-one -one with these nicotine replacement products. There are many products. There's over-the-counter, the gum, the patch, the lozenge. There's prescriptions. There's the inhaler, nasal spray. Um, and actually, the, when they relaxed the labeling, they did say that you could use two products concurrently. Um, but in terms of how to do that, that's not kind of labeled in terms of the FDA but you certainly can combine things, um, being aware that you are delivering nicotine. Um, and then in pregnancy, there's been a lot of back and forth in terms of those who smoke, use of nicotine replacement. Um, and for the most part, uh, demonstrating that nicotine ex you can minimize nicotine exposure. Um, the only kind of negative I was finding was that um, they looked at um, some abnormalities in terms of um, malformations and they found that there were some pulmonary, more pulmonary issues um, in those that use the nicotine as opposed, nicotine replacement as opposed to tobacco cessation. Um, there are barriers to using nicotine replacement and there are other avenues that we need to consider for nicotine replacement. So first of all, can we prescribe nicotine replacement? And the answer is a strong yes. Um, and in 2015, that policy that I mentioned from the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that we actually use both a state quit line and pharmacotherapy in treating nicotine-dependent parents. We already prescribe for parents in certain situations. Think of pertussis, prophylaxis, scabies. There's, there are opportunities for that we already do. Uh, but it's important to also look into, if you're working somewhere new and you want to look into your medical liability for this process too, so don't, you want to make sure that you're doing this safely so that we don't lose you who are interested in prescribing this. Um, additionally, there is, you know, I mentioned connecting with counselors. That is a thing that is difficult. There are, the availability of trained counselors has decreased. And so it's important that um, 
we provide some of that, but also connect with our peers and our colleagues in um, primary care for adults and using their resources too. Now what about reimbursement? So we cannot direct, get reimbursement directly for tobacco cessation counseling in parents because they are not our patients, but you can, and I, I've just learned this through this process, I haven't done that much training in terms of billing, but there's the aspect of the evaluation and management in your billing, and you can do it through counseling. So in terms of extending the time of your counseling um, and acknowledging some Z codes. I think that's a little bit too much, but I guess the main point is that you can get reimbursement, but it's indirect. Uh, but that should not stop you from doing this, as we can see with all the benefits of reducing exposure. Now, what about the risks of nicotine? The main thing that people are concerned about, other than kind of the question of addiction, um, is the potential for major effects. There was some back and forth in um, the groups from AAP, and when they talked about, um, I think there's a letter, the editor talking about the medical legal kind of ramifications of nicotine replacement therapy, and there was some concern about the effect and the potential for stroke and heart attacks, and really the data hasn't shown that these occur very frequently. I mentioned fetal anomalies, there's some concern in pregnancy, but there, the balance is that the adverse effects of tobacco smoke itself was greater, they felt, than the actual the risk of the fetal anomalies. Um, and in terms of what's the risk of nicotine when we think of things, the nicotine in the tobacco is about actually the tobacco smoke again and the combustion. It's not actually the nicotine in the tobacco that we're truly concerned about. So what about the cost of nicotine replacement? So over time, it's less expensive in how it's kind of primarily prescribed in terms of six to 12 week increments. Um, the lowest, and then one study, the lowest price of a pack of cigarettes was $3.50, and another highest was $6. And you can see this is the average daily cost of nicotine replacement. It's not cheap, but shortly I'll get to why it's, this may not be an issue on a state-by-state -state basis. So I know I didn't speak much on nicotine replacement or cessation medications for teens. But it's safe, but there's little evidence for effectiveness. And so the recommendation um, is not currently in place for, because of that, um, though these medications have been shown to decrease number of cigarettes smoked a day. Um, but if they're currently not approved for less than 18 years of age. What about, and I know I'm, some of you may have been around for Dr. Tansky's talk on e-cigarettes um, or electronic nicotine delivery systems. What about those in exposure? So it's important to evaluate and think about that because that's something that's much more common these days. Um, think about the health effects on the primary health effects on the user and then about the exposure and the vapor. Is it harmful? It contains nicotine, contains heavy metal. There's concern that it primes the brain for addiction. A recent study found in 2014 in the New England Journal of Medicine 
mentioned this about priming the brain to be receptive not only for addiction but harder drugs. And then a small study in August 2016 suggested that smoking e-cigarettes can cause arteries to stiffen. But recently, in 2017, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, there was a study that looked at a comparison of um, these cancer uh, products, uh, the metabolite levels of nicotine and some evidence of um, cancer, uh, sorry, the tricyanamines, um, and looked at the urine levels of these um, indicators for risk of, of cancer. Um, they're the volatile chemicals and um, found that they're the amounts in e-cigarette users and nicotine replacement were 95% less than tobacco cigarette users. So essentially saying, okay, that these are safer and don't cause as much cancer. Now that has led, I think, many parents and who use e-cigarettes to smoke more. Um, there was a recent survey of parents that said, okay, do you understand that the vapor from these electronic cigarettes is harmful? Um, and 33% of those surveyed said they didn't know. Um, and 40% said that, no, they caused little to no harm. And so that's a large number. And those that actually had those responses, the majority of those were current or former, former tobacco users or e-cigarette users, interestingly enough. So some data from New Hampshire, um, which is important to think about, is that if you look there in terms of high school students who smoke, it's only 9%. But high school students who use e-cigarettes is 25%. The same goes with parents. There's a trend towards use of e-cigarettes in terms of cost, in terms of perceived safety. Um, certainly, moving from tobacco smoke and that the kind of way in towards something containing nicotine is important, but this is an issue, certainly. Beyond nicotine replacement, there are other tools available. Smokefree.gov has many tools. There are apps, and there are pay apps. You can text-to-quit apps. Um, they provide guidance, so if you have a patient that's ready to quit, you can provide these digital resources, and they have little tidbits and advice so that you as a pediatrician can just spend those three minutes and really emphasize why you need to quit and then kind of set them running. So you can use these as slight surrogates in terms of counseling, but not completely. Um, for example, you know, delay, drink water, do something else. You, you can read those. Um, and then we get to the point, so this is all about assisting. Uh, it's important to then refer, because as I was mentioning already, um, we don't have the ability necessarily to see this patient day after day after day um, and get that cumulative effect and help them stop smoking. Additionally, um, these quit lines actually state by state have different approaches to nicotine replacement. In fact, New Hampshire's quit line offers no-cost nicotine gum, patches, and lozenges to all New Hampshire residents. Now, there's a caveat that there's, you know, you have to qualify for that, and, I'm, and part of it is Medicaid, and part of it um, is your 
poverty level and where you fall regarding that. Um, but that is an important point in terms of saying that these quit lines are important and you should use them. So it brings me to the end of my talk. Um, we can and should counsel and motivate parents and non-smokers to institute smoke-free home and cars and rules. We as providers are well-positioned to counsel parents in a family-centered approach to tobacco control. It's imperative that we get trained in tobacco control. And as we do this, I use the word tobacco control so that we can keep thinking about broadening our definition of success, mainly in terms of reducing exposure. 100% smoke-free homes and cars. And medication and various uses of nicotine replacement combined with counseling is an effective aid for limiting exposure. Thank you. sense, and I, I don't know the literature on that, but I do know that bringing in not only the mother, the one who gave birth, but also bringing in the father or other people in the support network for that patient can make them more successful. So I think that's the primary message I was looking at, is in terms of saying, how do you develop those supports at the same time that helps you get those other smokers into the conversation? Jeff, that, that was really a great you covered um, what people like Mike Fior say we should be doing in the practice setting. Um, but so as I think about it, you're going to go into this leadership preventive medicine program. You're going to be thinking about new ways to maybe address this issue in the in the practice setting. And and it, it, what it just all, this all just strikes me as kind of an old-fashioned approach to the whole thing. It's you're, you're the Twitter generation. <laughs> you all have cell phones. All these parents have cell phones. You're all connected. Why are we confining ourselves to these doctor-patient encounters, which occur, I mean, it's such a small proportion of people's time and life, and we're kind of hanging the whole thing on this doctor-patient encounter. 
You know, we either make it or break it as a doctor-patient encounter. Why, why aren't we developing automated systems that identify when, you know, pregnant mothers who quit smoking deliver and start messaging them, right? you know, or, in, you know, incentivizing mm -hmm. staying quit or incentivizing quitting, uh, sending people, you know, coupons for nicotine replacement therapy. Uh, why aren't we doing stuff like that um, to kind of extend, I mean, we could extend it so much what we do beyond that patient encounter. So I guess it's my question to you. Why do we confine ourselves to thinking about the doctor-patient encounter when we're a healthcare system and we're trying to develop, you know, something to address this behavior that's causing so much damage to our patients? That is an excellent question. Um, and, and I think, as you said, this, this approach does seem kind of archaic, but I think the key point is that we need to shift and take more responsibility in terms of smoking cessation or nicotine replacement and through kind of getting more people involved, getting more people to understand that this is what we can do, will then kind of provide, lead to the opportunities to say, okay, there are more people that are interested in this. Then we'll say, okay, we need to get more people and resources involved in developing these products that could kind of scour the medical record and send alerts. And I certainly agree with you. I think that is where we should go. Um, at the same time, these are still medications, and I think it's important that we have open discussions with how to use these products um, with, with parents so that we can do this effectively. And I still think there's some degree of face-to-face -face that is important. I, I, I don't know if that answered your question. I, mean, um, I, I have trouble think, thinking past the patient encounter as well. I mean... I'm 62, and, <laughs> but you're the you're the Twitter generation. I mean, you should be able to think past it. Right? You're, you're absolutely right, and, and I'm an electrical engineer, and you know, so I have a few reasons to. I agree, and um, I think one thing to to be aware of is, again, going back to what I was talking about in the beginning about the disparities and like who's really the ones that are smoking. Um, in terms of, I know that they use uh, you know people that are you know, more socioeconomically challenged and um, that fall into those categories I was mentioning still use these systems. But I still think there's some upfront training that needs to happen and kind of identification that they need to put their time and effort into this and saying that this is bad um, and that exposure is bad. Um, so when I think Twitter generation, Jeff does not pop into my head. No. <laughs> <laughs> me, me, me neither. <laughs> um, I, we, uh, I, I've worked here for a million years, I feel like, but I just recently, the last year, have found out about this fantastic smoking cessation nurse, and she's like works magic. But I wonder about, there's only one of her, and I have found it the hard way she's not worked on the bar today. And she's retiring. She's retiring. No, there's no replacement. Okay, so now I need four of But I, I'm wondering about what, what she's, she walks into a room with people who are pre-contemplative and walks out with them with a plan. And I'm wondering what, where we can get that set of options or, or at least some kind of training so that there isn't just one of her. And if you know anything about her local resources, because I feel like I've got nothing. I, what I have is you really need to quit smoking. <laughs> right. So, you know, I think just shifting the conversation is, is the goal, but in terms of where those resources can be found, the, the AAP uh, Richmond Center does have, on their website, has quite a few of those approaches. They have um, talks available that, you know, you can adapt, you can 
they have um, packaged approaches to that part. Um, now, does that automatically make one of these tobacco cessation nurses? No. But um, I think it, it will keep the conversation going until we can train more people. Um, otherwise, there are those apps that I mentioned, but um, and smokefree.gov is, has a lot of good ones, too. I think Jim knows full well why the Twitter generation is not. Because the healthcare system is reimbursing fee for service and not reimbursing us for prevention. And what we need is a system, obviously, that would reward people for prevention. Oh, single payer. What do we know about the raising the cost of the cigarette? Uh, package and its effect on the smoking. I just, you may not have studied that. Jim, do you know? Yeah, they call that price elasticity. And there's, you know, you raise the cost of cigarettes and people do smoke less. But, you know, the, the other side of it is these people are, that are spending 20% of their their income on cigarettes, you, you, you raise the cost of cigarettes and if they can't or won't quit, you're just making it harder for them. So there's, it's a double-edged sword because most of our patients who smoke are poor. Plus, it's a, that's right, it's a regressive tax. It, yeah. it, right. it injures the, yeah. the, the more impoverished person yeah. drinking more. But, but, it, but it does decrease demand for, for cigarettes. It also increases black market cigarettes. The problem with increasing taxes is that the cigarette companies... Um, decrease their profit margin to make the actual cost of the pack pretty much the same. So it cuts into their profit margin. It gives them less money to use for, you know, for things. But they, they do they, they do a lot to... to so from $80 billion to $78 billion. <laughs> because, because cigarettes are so profitable. Yeah. Dr. Ringer. Uh, Jeff, this was really a great review. <coughs> but I, I wouldn't have characterized it as archaic. I would have <laughs> very personal, right? I mean, and I know that was your focus, but but um, you really didn't reflect much on public health efforts, and, and I think there's lots of evidence that that it offers a tremendous amount of, uh, of possibilities. I mean, raising the age at which cigarettes can be legally sold has been enormously effective. Um, remarkably, even even in progressive states to our south, <laughs> um, many towns have been, in Massachusetts considered banning tobacco sales altogether. But on, on the flip side, CBS took really the heroic step of saying, gee, we're a pharmacy, we're not going to sell cigarettes anymore. This doesn't make logical sense. And, and that was due to vigorous public health efforts on the part of physicians, right? In other words, the fact that it's not, it's not our conversations with individual people as much as our role as keepers of the public health and advocates for the public health that um, might impact us. It wasn't a question, eh? No, I, and, and, well, and, and I don't know if anyone saw that in the Valley News recently. You know, in Lebanon, they are also instituting, kind of trying to institute more 
local in terms of no no smoking bans in terms of some public settings that they couldn't otherwise and it's more advocacy to change the age of sale in New Hampshire to get the partnership of the State Department of Public Health. I mean it's in the interest of the state. I'm not in the interest of the tobacco companies. So when you want to criticize tobacco companies for making a lot of money, maybe you should be similarly criticizing your own state for failing to provide social It's your state, too. The organization is finally setting in. I'm willing to argue with that. Not to disagree with Dr. Ringer, but the public health message has been going out since the 60s. I mean, my grandmother, who smoked forever, was fully aware of the risks of smoking, and yet was totally ticked off when they refused to let her smoke on the planes anymore. So she was well aware of it. So I feel like our messaging has been going out for 50 years, um, and we're clearly not doing as good a public health message as we need to, which was leading me to my question which is, do you know if um, you talk about raising the age, we talk about taxation, what about the pictures that the European Union puts on their cigarette packages that has just really ugly pictures of smoking? There's no marble man, there's no advertising about how cool cigarettes are, but there's just a picture on the cigarettes of damaged lungs and bad teeth. Do you know its efficacy or if there's any movement in the states to do that? Well, I think there was... I, I... I remember seeing this. I didn't look into this very closely, but I, I think it it was somewhere in the courts, and I don't know where it, it stopped. Um, and saying that the FDA had to take control of tobacco and regulate it, and part of the act passed by Congress was they had to change the labeling on cigarettes. The FDA proposed eight new labels that were graphic warning labels. The tobacco industry sued in court. It went up through a couple of appeals courts, and the appeal judge uh, agreed with the industry that that it violated the industry's First Amendment free speech rights to require them to put that kind of information on their own package. So in this this country right now, um, there's, there's, there's really, uh, the FDA has gone back to the drawing board. They're trying to develop better uh, evidence that these packages make a difference, and then they're going to go back to the drawing board. I, I'm sure that, you know, because the Act of Congress says that they have to change the labeling, uh, they'll have to change the labeling, but they don't feel like they're in a, a strong position against that legal challenge against the company's First Amendment rights. Corporations of people, too. There's an increasing use of smoke and other types of marijuana in the United States and elsewhere. And I'm hearing that people are using it as a nicotine replacement, not only by smoking independently or co-smoking at times, but mixing marijuana with tobacco and rolling the road. Do you know anything about that? Can you share something? Uh, <laughs> so, so I, f- fortunately, I can say no to both those. I mean, unfor- I mean, no to the first and no to the second. But um, I, I can't see how that would necessarily re- replace 
I mean, there, there are ideas that you're kind of trying to change habits and, you know, addressing kind of those underlying reasons why people go to smoke, maybe, but um, it still doesn't address necessarily the withdrawal symptoms and, you know, rolling them together reduce it, wouldn't reduce the kind of health effects long-term in terms of that tobacco combustion. So um, I, I don't know too much about that. I don't know if anyone else has heard about that. I wouldn't say experienced it. Um, At the college. When thinking about the challenge of prescribing for the parents, and one of the problems is you need to have an open EDH window in order to do some of that prescribing. Do you have any thoughts about ways that pediatricians can partner with other providers, with internists and family doctors in a system such as ours to more effectively provide family-centered care? Yeah, I think, I mean, going back to Jim was saying, we have these little, you know, our flags and our things in our charts that say, yes, they smoke. And when we do this counseling and if we identify someone that's interested, I mean, that should really trigger, I don't know if it's an in-basket message. I mean, I know everyone's in-baskets are full. Um, <laughs> but they're... they're there should, there should be something that flags and kind of translates over to the parent's chart. Um, that's also assuming that they have a chart um, and are seeing a primary care physician. But, it, you know, thinking about I don't know if, what if there's a process in place right now, but I, I couldn't imagine that, that that couldn't be simple. Well, there's currently, you know, this argument about whether primary care should be cited <coughs> with a subspecialty unit or with other primary care doctors. And, and, and I think that what you just brought up, Don, is an argument for having primary care doctors working together at the same place. You know, if I'm a pediatrician working in a place where there are internal medicine doctors and family practice doctors, I can walk the patient over to uh, see somebody in internal medicine or family practice to get their, their tobacco addiction addressed more easily than if I'm in a pediatric clinic with so that would be an argument in favor of that kind of a situation. That's an interpretation. So um, a good wide-ranging conversation we trigger, Jeff. Um, can, can I ask just one question? <laughs> <laughs> you have two already. I just want one more. <laughs> you, 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 like with your harm reduction thing, you stopped at nicotine replacement therapy. Hmm. Why stop at nicotine replacement therapy? Why wouldn't it be good if you had uh, a male smoker in the household switch to Copenhagen. Uh, you know, he's, he stops using combustible tobacco. He's using Copenhagen. Yeah, he's at risk for lip cancer. He's no longer uh, putting himself at risk for lung cancer. And he's not putting his children at risk because it's not combusted. But I, 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 I'll answer the question for him first. <laughs> right. There's a balance there, I think. And I'm talking about relative harm. That's, that's we, we, we have to deal with relative harm all the time, Keith. We don't eliminate well, and, it. Jim, that's, and, the question, that's the question with our hand on the doors we're leaving the exam but room. We have that, that's coming up, and that's live, not just what you were mentioning, but with e-cigarettes. So, so I'm going to hold it right there and say, let's <laughs> not leave the room not celebrating the success of public health in creating significant decreases in tobacco use in this country over generations, we would not be correct saying that since the 60s, public health has failed. So public health has succeeded, maybe not as much as we would like, 
but we need that in addition to the personal clinical interactions to do better. And we need novel, non-clinical, non-public health techniques or new public health techniques using technology like Jim alludes to, to get all the way to zero. But, but this is a story of success in this country. Um, so let's not mistake that, but we still have to do more. And one other reminder, tonight, Auditorium H, the annual meeting of the faculty, state of, of the medical school addressed by the new dean, or the official new dean, Dean Compton, along with induction into the Geisel Academy of Medical Educators of uh, some of our colleagues, actually. So hopefully Auditorium H will be there at 5.30. Have a great day.